Let me show our worship team your love and appreciation as you take a seat this morning. There's an a online satirical Christian kind of blog, and uh, one post they put out one time was, uh, Guy interrupts pers- perfectly good worship service to talk for 30 minutes. And so, like, after, after that type of way, that's what I feel like I'm coming into. But my name is Destin Garner. If you don't know me, I'm the student ministry pastor here at Rock Point Church. And so Ron has been out on sabbatical and has uh, graciously offered for me to step in and fulfill uh, that role. So I'll be here this week. I'll be here next week talking about biblical reliability. I'm going to talk about uh, the four most common objections to why people don't believe in the veracity and the, the reliability of Scripture. And then Ron will be back in the saddle. And I know that feels good for everybody, uh, even for me. But I got a text last night from a guy who said, hey, uh, who's preaching tomorrow? And I said, I am. <laughs> and so he's like, oh, I guess I got to go now, you know, since he asked me. But he was here at 9 o'clock, so I felt good about myself. But um, anyways, let me start with this. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. When is the time you have experienced incredible change in your life? Like there was before and there was after, and they're so completely different, so completely opposite. Radical change, radical transformation, maybe even overnight. For me, I remember this time in my life. It's not necessarily life-shattering or earth-shaking, but, but it's just something I will always remember and never forget. It happened my sophomore year of high school. And so it was happening around Christmas time, okay? And now every family celebrates Christmas in their own unique way. They do presents in their own unique way. So there are some families, some of you may be one of these families, that you open presents on Christmas Eve? Anybody? Yeah, a bunch of backslidden pagans, you know, um, so there's that, there's that model. Um, there's, there's another model that people like to do where it's like, we don't like to buy things. We like to make things for each other, like homemade gifts. They're so sweet and they're so precious. And yeah, they are. But I'm going to tell my daughter, Bryce, unless you can make clothes like J. Crew or grills like Weber or phones like Apple, I don't need your pipe cleaner and popsicle stick reindeer ornament. You can give that to mom, okay? I will, um, I will take some cologne is what I, you know, is that harsh? Is that bad? Anyway, uh, it's just true. Um, there's some families that do this model. Uh, I, I've seen this before. A family in Austin, where I was a pastor there, they only gave their kids three presents. That's it. In the stocking, that's all you got. You got three presents. And I was so curious about this. I'm like, why? I'm like, they had a really nice house. They weren't poor or anything. And so, you know, I was talking to the mom, and she said, you know, my kids ask me that all the time. Mom, why do we only get three presents for Christmas? And this was her response. She said, because your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, only got three presents, and you ain't no better than him. You know, I was like, okay, that's pretty good, you know. <laughs> you're only like half as good as Jesus, so maybe you'll get like a toy and a sock, and if you're good, next Christmas you'll get the other sock to match the pair. And so that's the way she went about it. Now, as a kid, I would hate that, right, only getting three presents, but as an parent, I'm kind of warming up to that idea. So feel free to use that this Christmas if you want to. Just know if your kid gets wise and gets smart on you, the modern-day value of the gold, frankincense, and myrrh that was given to Jesus was somewhere between 500000 and a million dollars. So, you know, just be ready if they come back at you with that one. But right, so for me and my family, we did Christmas the normal, the natural, the traditional way. Ton of presents, Christmas morning, right, the way it should be. And so I remember sophomore year of high school, a week before Christmas, I had 15 presents under the tree because I counted every single one. I like I had the little sheet, you know, I'd go out and I'd inspect them. And, oh, my brother moved that one, you know. But every single one of them, I'd pick up, I'd shake it a little bit, I'd listen to it, I'd kind of feel it. If mom got sloppy on the tape job, I could peek in a little bit, I'd put it right back. I mean, I was all about 
presents. That was the week before Christmas, my sophomore year of high school. On Christmas morning, I had zero presents. And it's not like someone broke into my home and stole them. No, 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 no. On Christmas morning, I sat and watched my mom open presents. I watched my dad open presents. I watched my brother open a ton of presents. I had none. This is the dramatic change of before and after that I will never forget. And there's a reason, a really good reason, why I had zero presence. There was a moment, there was a tipping point in my life that caused that much dramatic change. And it happened when I played basketball. So I grew up and, and I went to high school in Paris, Texas, up the road here, played basketball. And we would do tournaments over Christmas break. So everybody's out of school just a few days before Christmas. And I have a tournament in Greenville, Texas. And so there I am playing. And now I have incredible, incredible parents. My mom and my dad, I cannot think of a game, one basketball game that they ever missed. They were at every single game. And what was great about my parents is that they were this awesome combo, right? Like dad would just yell at the ref and mom would just yell at me. And so there's this wonderful dynamic duo. And so dad would be there. I mean, as soon as tip-off happened, you know, the the ref would throw it up and we'd jump. My dad would just start screaming, you call that a tip-off? You know, I've seen an infant throw a bowling ball higher than that. And uh, he would just go, go, go. And my mom, she was just, you know, again, focused on me. And she wanted me just to, this is her phrase, is just go to the goal. Go to the goal, go to the goal, go to the goal. And that's what, just what she would yell for 60 minutes. And I said, Mom, I'm the point guard. I got to, like, set up a play and pass the ball. Go to the goal, go to the goal. You know, it's just like, this was her. She just wanted me to take the ball to the goal all the time. And, um, so we're in this tournament, okay, Greenville, Texas. It's like two to three days before Christmas. No one's there. It's the middle of the day. There's like seven people in the gym to watch the game. My mom and dad are two of them. And so my dad's just getting into the ref, and my mom is just laying in to me. So I'm dribbling the ball down the court. Here I am. I'm at the top of the key. And I don't know, maybe I was just being a little bit more lethargic that day if my mom was a little more peppy. But she was really giving it to me. Go the goal. Go the goal. Go the goal. And so in the middle of the game, as I'm dribbling, I just look up at my mom and I say, sit down and shut up. And she gives me the. I mean, you know, purses her lips, crosses her arms, just shake her head. And I'm like. What did I just do, you know? And so she says, she didn't say a word. I mean, it worked. Um, she didn't say a word the rest of the game. Usually after basketball games, I like ride home with mom and dad and nice suburban. But that, not that time. She said, you're riding the bus home. And so I rode the bus home from the game. When I got home, my mom had gone in and taken every single one of my Christmas presents and put them in her closet. So that Christmas morning, I sat there with nothing to open up. She finally gave me the presents as like on January 1st. She's like, these aren't your Christmas presents. You lost those. These are New Year's presents, you know, and just kind of gave them to me. But I, I think about that, like, I can never forget that story and how stupid I was in saying that. But it was a dramatic change that happened almost instantaneously. There was a moment, a tipping point that caused that. And in today's text, I think you're going to see the same thing. I'm going to paint a picture for you of what life was like in Judah before. And then I'm going to skip over the catalyst, the tipping point. We're going to look at what life was like after. And then we're going to ask ourselves, what brought about this incredible change? So if you want to grab your Bible, we're going to be in 2 Kings 21. Before we get there, I want to just give you some context, some background information. So as 
The Israelites leave Egypt. They wander in the desert, in the wilderness for the 40 years. They move into the promised land. They're supposed to, supposed to drive out all the Canaanites. When I was with you guys two, three weeks ago, that's what I talked about. The purpose for the judges. They're supposed to drive out the Canaanites, but they did not do that. So there's this pagan influence that seeped into Israel's worship. And so what would happen was that God would punish them for that in the form of a, a, a foreign pagan nation coming in and kind of conquering them. And then they would be repentant of it, and then God would raise up a judge, which was not a leader, but it was a deliverer, a savior, to deliver them. And this cycle would go on and on and on and on. So now we get to the period of the end of the judges. And now we're moving into the period of the kings. We go, well, how do we get kings? Well, it's simply the fact that the nation of Israel, they weren't supposed to have a king. That was not God's plan and design for them. What God wanted was for them to have no king so that God would be their king. He would be the one. And this was supposed to be an evangelistic tool for all the other surrounding nations, for them to go, hey, how, how are you guys doing it? Like, you don't have a king. They're like, yeah, it's Yahweh. He is our king. But the nation of Israel didn't do that. They got whiny. They got pouted. And they're like, we want a king and Samuel, the prophet's like, why? Everybody else has got one. And so Samuel's like, you don't want a king. And I'll tell you why. Because a king is going to take your young men, and he's going to put them into his battles. He's going to make them ride on the chariots. He's going to put them into war, and you will lose them. He will take your best servants, and he will make them work in his household, in his castle, in his kingdom, in his vineyards. He will take your women, and they will become his servants and his cooks. And he'll take your choice cattle, and he'll take your choice land, and he'll tax you. And they're like, that's what we want. And Samuel's like, you boneheads, you know. But God says, you know what? Give them what they want. And so God allowed for kings to come into place. And so what we have is a series of king after king after king. We have three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, who over the united monarchy. And then afterwards we have two uh, divided monarchies. We have Israel, which is the northern kingdom, and Judah, which is the southern kingdom. And so where we pick up today in the text, 2 Kings 21, we're looking at Manasseh, who was one of the kings of Judah, the southern kingdom. In 2 Kings 21, it says, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hezbiah, and, she did, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nation whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places. When you hear that, think idol worship that Hezekiah, his father, destroyed. He erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah that Ahab, king of Israel, had done and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He built altars to pagan gods in the house of the Lord, which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord, and he burned his son as an offering. And he used fortune-telling and omens and dealt with mediums and necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. In your text, if you look down to verse 16, it says, He shed much innocent blood, which most people think are the prophets of God, those leaders who rose up to say, Hey, Manasseh, king of Judah, the southern portion of Israel, this is wrong. And he would just have them killed. And so we read this, and this should be a little bit kind of like bothersome to you. And, hey, that's not very good. This guy's not doing well. But what I want you to do is try to really feel the weight of the corruption and the depravity that's going on. So I just want to take what Manasseh did and give you a modern-day kind of translation just so you understand. 
So imagine, Ron comes back from sabbatical in two weeks, and you notice a few changes around campus when you get here. Uh, you can still come to North po- or Main Point here and uh, worship God, or you can go over to West Point. We've now set up a place for you to worship Mother Earth, or if you'd like, you can now go to North Point, and you can worship Allah there. And so we have, when you walk into this room and this building, all down here, there's a, there's a row of places. There are men and women set aside that you can have sex with in order to become successful in your business. This was part of Baal worship. He was a storm god. This is an agrarian society. And so they had this fertility ritual, this fertility rite. You know, it was a prostitute cult that they did. And so then Ron stands up on stage and he says, you know what? I've had a great time on sabbatical. I had my palm read a couple different times, talked to some dead people. I have some great vision for you. Can't wait to share it after worship. Matt stands up and he leads a song. We start worshiping the moon. We start worshiping the stars. We start worshiping the sun. After the service is older, we all, over, we all go outside where Ron sacrifices his son by burning him alive to Molech. And then some people in the church go like, this is not right. The elders, the key leaders, they step up and they say, hey, Ron, you're, this is not good. We shouldn't be doing this. And he just has them killed by the security team. That's a modern-day translation of exactly what is happening in Judah. That's the before picture. And what happens is after 55 years of Manasseh's reign, he dies. His son Ammon takes the throne. There is only one difference between Manasseh and Ammon. It's that Ammon is worse. Ammon only is king of Judah for two years. He's so bad that his own people, his royal court, kill him. And so now everybody's looking around. What are we going to do for a king? Well, who's next in line? Let's take Josiah, Ammon's son. Let's make him king. Done. Boom. We got a king. Josiah is eight years old when he's made king. Imagine how tough that would be to enter that kind. And I imagine he's just got to be a puppet king, right, that other people are trying to control. He's eight years old. That's the before picture. So I want to skip chapter 22. I want you to go to chapter 23, and let's look at the after this may be about 18 years after Josiah's uh, initiation, inauguration as king. He's maybe about 26 years old. And in 2 Kings 23, we see the after picture. We see what Josiah does. I'm going to read some select verses in here, starting at verse 4. And Josiah commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priest of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the hosts of the heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the field of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. He deposed the priests whom the king of Judah had ordained to make offering in the high places of the city in Judah around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal and the sun and the moon and the constellations and the host of heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron. And he burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the house of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord and the women who wove the hangings for the Asherah. Verse 10, Josiah defied Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Molech. Verse 15, moreover, the altar of Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin, that altar with the high place, he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. And he also burned the Asherah. 
And in verse 19, Josiah removed all the shrines of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made, provoking the Lord to anger. He did to them according all that he had done at Bethel. He sacrificed the high priest on the places who were there and on the altars and burned the human bones on them. And then he returned to Jerusalem. The brother comes in and cleans house. There is not one issue he doesn't address, not one act of evil he doesn't purge, not one altar to a pagan god that he doesn't drag out and burn and turn to dust. This is an amazing change, complete reform, ultimate revival. But what happened? How did we get from Manasseh and all that he was doing to Josiah? What came about? Well, the answer, the tipping point, the catalyst, we find in chapter 22. So let's turn there. I'll start in verse 8, but kind of the beginning of the chapter says that Josiah wants to get money out of the house of the Lord and use it to fix up and repair the house of the Lord. He's going to make some renovations on the temple. And so verse 8 we see, And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan and the secretary, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. He read it in Shaphan. The secretary came to the king and reported to the king. Your servants had emptied out the money that was found in the house and delivered it into the hands of the workmen who have oversight over renovating the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before Josiah. When Josiah heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam son of Shaphan, Akbar the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire the Lord for me and for the people and for all of Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of God that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed this book and do according to all that is written concerning us. And so you understand what it means when he says, We've found the book of the law. What that means is that they lost the Bible. Like, not lost it as in like, oh yeah, I read it yesterday and I'm not sure where I placed it. Lost it as in like maybe for 70 years, they didn't even know it existed. And so scholars think that what they found in the temple was the book of Deuteronomy. that said, hey, if you do this, you'll get blessings. If you do this, you'll get curses. And so for the first time in his life, Josiah has read the words of the book of Deuteronomy. And he just, he's mourning. He rips his clothes. He realizes how far off track they've gotten. How far away from God that they've gone. I want you to think, what would you do in that situation? Like, you know, you're, you're king Someone comes to you and says, hey, we you know, didn't even know this existed, but here it is, and we're like totally off base. A couple options you got. Number one is you can say, uh, go lose that book again. You know, just put it back. You know, sprinkle some dust on it so it didn't look like we touched it. You know, it's just going to ignore like this ever happens. If any of you say anything, Agbar, I swear if you say something, right? And so that could be one of your responses, just ignoring it. You could try to justify it a little bit and say, you know what, like how are we supposed to know I mean, the book was lost. It's not our fault, like where we're at. Another thing you could do is you could just give in and say, man, it's so hard. Like, I, I mean, this is ingrained in our culture 70 years. How am I going to change this? This is going to rock the boat and upset some things, right? 
But Josiah doesn't do that. He doesn't justify it. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't give into it. He's just simply sorry for it. And that's the moment revival begins. When you and I stop ignoring and start addressing our sin. And so maybe you're saying, you know what, Destin, you don't know me. I've got some sin in my life or just whatever. And yeah, every time I come to church, I'm convicted. Or whenever you know, I hear the word of God, I'm convicted. But like, to undo that would just be so hard. It would hurt so many people in my life. There's just so much change. Or, you know, i, I got to blame my past. I didn't know. Or X, Y, Z, right? I just want you to think about how hard it was for Josiah to do this. I, I mean, he gets the book of the law. And it's been 70 years since anyone's read this. Help me imagine what it would feel like to put you in a situation. So let's say Donald Trump comes to you. says, you know what? Presidency is not working for me. It's all yours. Boom, you're president. They rush you up to Washington, inaugurate you, do all the fancy stuff. And you are president of the United States of America. You're doing good, by the way. A couple months in, you're doing right. Then your chief of staff comes to you and says, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Uh, We found something in the bowling alley. Um, it's, uh, it's part of the Constitution. We didn't even know it existed. We'd think Reagan lost it. I don't know. And, um, but you, you need to see this. So you, as the President of the United States, gets part of the Constitution that was cut off. And here's what it says. Football is strictly prohibited. <laughs> put it back. Put it. No, right? What would you do in that situation? You know, it's like imagine now you've got to go to like to every, you know, Saturday peewee thing and you're ripping their jerseys off and you're in academy stabbing footballs one by one. You're shooting all the lights out of the stadiums in Flower Mountain, Marcus. Like there's no more cotton, no more Sugar Bowl, Cotton Bowl, Terminex Bowl, uh, Flower Mountain, Lantana, Dry Cleaning Bowl. You know, none of those exist anymore. You no more Super Bowl. Every stadium's got to burn. It's got to crumble. Do you know how many people's livelihood is connected to football? Do you know how much worship and money is put into football? Sorry, Chevy, Ford, Bud, Miller, and Viagra. You don't get to run your commercials anymore, right? It would, it's just crazy how much it would affect the economy. This is exactly the situation Josiah is in. 70 years, this has just been ingrained in people. People's political lives and their livelihood and their money and their power is all up in this. And he has to change every single thing. Imagine how hard that would be. I think about a story for me that happened uh, maybe a year or two ago. It kind of makes me think about this a little bit. And so for me, I don't know about you, your role in the house, but my role is I'm the light turner offer. And so like at night, I kind of do the, you know, got the light, got the light, check the door. I do that thing. And so I remember one night as I was going around the house, I got to the kitchen. That's my last light to turn off. And I go, and I turn it off, and, and there it was. It was a snake in my house, okay? So at this moment, I did what any man, any husband would do. I turned the light off and went to bed. No, I didn't, I didn't. You can't, you can't do that. When you see something that evil, right, you have to address it. And so my first reaction, a uh, very stud reaction, I just kind of like hopped up on the bar, okay? You know, so like, it could, so there I am, like hands and knees on the bar, and I'm looking at it, and it's looking at me, and it's giving me the, you know, the thing, you know, and, and the tongue thing, and it's starting to like kind of get up the wall a little bit, and it's showing off, and I'm like, 
Jamie, Jamie. You know, Jamie's asleep. The dog's off licking himself somewhere. So this is like on me. And um, so I'm just like, I get the rifle, and I'm like, well, the resale value of the home. So I, I, I go to the garage, which is where all the good killing toys or tools are. And um, so I'm looking for the hoe, but we don't have a hoe because I kind of live in Lantana, and they do all my yard work for me. And so um, I found a rake. Uh, it's got, you know, the, the hard rake with the pointy ends, you know, and, like, that's the best killing snake tool I can find. And so I, I come in the house, and I'm like, oh, he's still there. Like, I was hoping he was still there, right? And so I'm like, how am I going to kill this thing? And um, I've seen a knight's tail before, so I thought, well, maybe I'll just, like, joust it. And so I, I flip the rake over, and I put the wooden handle on the ground. And then I just, with my best brave heart, yell, just, Aah! and I slam it into the wall, and it splits the snake in half, at which point I rip my shirt, and I'm like, Ooh! you know, I am just feeling so good. But then I go get Jamie, and I'm like, you got to handle that. Like, I can't. I did all that I could do. Get those pieces out of my house. <laughs> and I'll tell you that story, right, because, like, when you see something like that, you don't flip off the light and go to bed. You have to address it. But how many times in our lives do we see something in our heart and our soul that could harm us, that could cause us danger to us or our family? We flip the light switch and we go to bed. And this is what Josiah is up against. Am I going to just ignore this or justify it, give in to it, or am I going to tackle it head on? See, I wrote a question down here. It says, do you protect your relationship with God? Do you protect your soul as much as you protect your family, your assets, your business, your pride, your reputation, your power, your position, your appearance, your health? We spend all kinds of money and time and energy protecting for things that are temporary. And I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just asking the question, are we spending the same amount to protect that which matters? When you see something in your life that could cause damage or destruction, harm yourself or your family, do we confess it? Do we address it? Do we turn from it? Do we flip the switch, go to bed and ignore it? What the author of Kings writes about Josiah is just one of the most incredible compliments I've seen. Second Kings 23, 25. The author talks of Josiah and says, Before Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after so I was going to some mission trips this summer. I got some time to be in a car alone. I was heading down to New Orleans. I just started listening to some podcasts, and I stumbled across one from a guy. His name is Levi Lusco. He's a, a pastor of a church in Montana. And Levi told this personal story that was just so heart-wrenching, but I believe it fits here today, and I'd love just to share his story with you. What Levi said in his sermon was this, that he's sitting around his house. It's a few days before Christmas. He, his wife... His three daughters wrapping presents. When Linya, his middle daughter, five years old, has an asthma attack. No big deal. They have an inhaler. And so they go and they grab that and they give her the inhaler, but that doesn't work. So they go to step two. They grab the nebulizer and they try that, but the nebulizer doesn't work. 
Next thing you know, they're in the back of an ambulance and they're racing to the hospital. Levi said in the, in the sermon that they get to the hospital and he holds his daughters in his arms and unfortunately she does not make it. And so he's just so broken down and he, he talked about leaving the hospital. He goes, this is the same hospital I walked my daughter out of five years ago when she was born and now I'm leaving without her. He said he got in the car and when he goes to back out, he looked in the rearview mirror and he saw the empty car seat and he just about lost it. And at that moment, his wife reached over to him and said, baby, 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 you didn't invite those people to church for Christmas Eve service. And he's like, really? After everything that just happened, all we've gone through, you're thinking about Christmas Eve service? And she said, there's no other reason why we would be here. There's no other reason why the inhaler wouldn't work, the nebulizer wouldn't work, the ambulance couldn't fix it. So he does. He looks around the car. He grabs some bulletins. He goes to the people. He walks inside. He sees two paramedics and one nurse. And says, I don't know how, but in a few days I'm going to preach a Christmas Eve service. I would love for you to be there. Christmas Eve service comes. All three of those people the two paramedics and the nurse are in attendance. All three of those people trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior at that service. And as I was listening to it, I was thinking about this, and I thought, you know what? That, the Lusco family, they could have been just another family going through just another tragedy at just another hospital. But they didn't. And now we tell the story, and they're like unlike any other. And it's the same thing with Josiah. He could have been just another king, but he wasn't. What was written about Josiah is there's never been another like him. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be just another dad. I don't want to be just another husband. I don't want to be just another employee. When, when people put me in the ground, I want those standing there around to say, there's never been another like him who loved the Lord, who taught the word, who cared for his kids, who loved his wife. That's what I want. I think that's what you want too. And it begins when we don't ignore, but we address, we confess, and we turn to God with all that we are. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy and your willingness to provide us with your revelation of yourself in the scripture. God, that we can know you, know who you are. God, in that word, it's going to cut deep into our lives. It's not always going to be what we want or what we agree or what we feel like doing. And so, God, I just pray when that happens that you would lead us to a place of bold obedience, that we would be reminded of Josiah, that we would not just be another person, another patient in the hospital, another flower mound millionaire, God, but that we would be obedient and faithful to you no matter what it takes, no matter how hard the task is in front of us. And Lord God, I pray for anybody in this audience today under the sound of my voice that has not experienced the ultimate transformation, the ultimate revival in their life, that they've not trusted in you as Savior. God, it's the most beautiful before and after picture that we were dead in our sin and then we're made alive in Christ. God, and there's a moment, a tipping point, and that could happen for someone here today. 
So, Lord, if someone needs to do that, to ask for forgiveness of her sins, to put their trust in you, I find that they would find somebody and they would do that. And they would experience that incredible, incredible change, God. We love you. Jimmy, pray. Amen.